Hey, everybody. Hey, um, gosh, I did not expect this many of you. This is really fun. Hold on, I need to make this full screen so I know how much time I have. Um, man. So, um, I'm so glad to see everybody. It's been a really long time since we've done this. Um, even though we haven't gotten together for like training and thanking you guys and all that for a while, um, you still have showed up to actually do the serving part. And I'm really thankful for that. And I know that um, the people you've served are, and I trust that the Lord is really glad for it too. Um, I, I'm just looking around here. I just see people from all these different ministries, people who turn knobs to people who put up with teenagers, um, to teenagers who put up with five-year-olds and love them and all that. And um, it's really great to have all you guys on the same team. So sometimes it feels like a football team where like the defense and the offense don't get to talk and stuff. And what are the special teams people doing? But um, it's really good. I've, I've been to... Um, I've been around a lot of pastors over the last two years who are really struggling, you know. And I was just at Glenn Smith's place in Colorado where they're taking in couples. He said, he said um, like 65% of the couples that they're getting um, are, are struggling with some kind of extramarital affair that has been brought on by, by just pressure and stress and so on. And that there's, they're, booked, they're booked for this whole year and part of next year already. Just, just pastoral families in crisis that just know them. They haven't even widened the sphere yet. And so, I mean, I feel like, I was like, yeah, you know, listen, pastoral ministry is really hard, but less hard for me than most people. And it's, it's because, because of you guys. It's, it's, a, it's really great to pastor a church of people who don't do this because of me and who love each other and love people and love God. And um, I'm just really glad to be part of this and to be with you guys. And part of the reason you should know that is because this is now my 12th Wisconsin winter. You know, so 11th, actually, sorry. Okay, so tonight I want to talk with you guys about something relative to, we try to make the stuff we talk about here really practical for ministry. I want to make this really practical for ministry, um, both for you, because what we're finding right now is like people are just coming apart um, emotionally right now. We're seeing way more um, people just struggling emotionally than we've seen. And you think like it'd be getting better now, and it's, it doesn't seem to be getting better now. Just talk to any counselor you know, they're booked. And, um, and with people who are really struggling. Um, so when I did um, the book Substance a while back, let's see if this, I can get this to work. Oh, awesome. It worked when we tested it four times. So um, when I did the book Substance, I had a section in the book on spiritual discipline. But in that section of the book, I really didn't talk about spiritual disciplines, like spiritual practices that we would do to grow in faith. And part of the reason for that is I wanted to, I didn't want to talk about spiritual disciplines. Lots of people talk about that stuff, even though I don't like the way most people talk about it. Um, but I wanted to get to the idea of spiritual discipline first, because if we can't get rid of some distraction and have a little bit of spiritual discipline, it doesn't matter what spiritual disciplines we approve of, we won't do any of them. Does that make sense? Go to the next slide, would you, Nicole? I think you have to do this until something better happens. Um, not only are, am I seeing more people that need pastoral counseling, all the counselors I know are seeing people who are in much worse shape than they would normally see their average client. But also, like, um, if you've, I don't know if you've heard people talking about this over the last maybe 10 or 12 years, about people having quarter-life crises now. So instead of waiting till you're, like, 55, it's like you, you have a personal crisis at, like, 25 to 30, right? How many people have had a quarter-life crisis? Anybody here? Yeah, a few people. There you go, Parker. Way to be honest. Love you. Um, yeah, and so because p people are having anxieties about their legacy and their life a lot earlier, and part of the reason for that is there's no script you're supposed to 
do anymore. We delay it. We don't want to take on all that responsibility. But then you, we also don't take on all that meaning. And then you wonder, like, what the heck's my life doing? And it's a, it's a real problem. There, I was at a conference this week where the pastor was talking mostly to ministry leaders. And he said he called 45 to 55 years old the decade of stupid. And he said that because he's like, just look at just almost any guy who's a pastor who blows up his church, or most guys that blow up their family, um, and they'll be 45 to 55. And it's kind of like the midlife crisis moment, but he, he said there's something about that decade where you're like accomplished enough, enough in your field and, and like weary enough as, as a person, and you have more power than you've ever had, but all of your like wounds are kind of catching up to you. And like that is the decade of stupid, which was really encouraging to me at 44, you know? <laughs> I preached at an almost all African immigrant church this weekend, um, not being here when Dem was preaching. I was at Living Springs Church, um, which is Samuel Toombs Church. We helped them build out their sanctuary. I got to see their new sanctuary. It's beautiful. They can seat like 125 people, and that's with the 25 feet of space between the pulpit and the first chair, so there's room for dancing, which there was. It was great. Um, and so I did the substance talk in which I asked like the eight questions about like how bad is your faith going. Um, and there, a few people um, talked, talked afterwards. One person talked to my wife, and she said, I really needed this message because I said yes to every single question, which is bad in that test, by the way. Um, go on to the next one, if you, if you would, Nicole. Um, so one of the things that people struggle with is when we talk about spiritual practices that increase or, or help our faith, whether this is like for you or people in your small group or people that you might mentor or people that you're talking to in a youth ministry or children's ministry, um, there's this kind of chicken and the egg problem because in one sense, you've got to have some spiritual discipline to do some spir any spiritual disciplines. If you don't have any spiritual discipline, you won't do any spiritual disciplines. The problem is, is that if you don't do any spiritual disciplines, it's really hard to build spiritual discipline. So it's kind of like, well, which comes first? You know? And, and it's, you have to think of it kind of like a spiral that starts really small and then grows bigger. So if you're like, look, Nick, I just can't sit and pray for seven hours. Okay, great. No problem. Let's try three minutes. Let's try three minutes four times a day. And, and, and you do that, and then like you'll get to five. And there's, there actually in the Bible, I don't know if you know this, there actually is no minute goal for praying. I don't know if you know that. There's no like, look, if you get past seven hours, you know, you're a real Christian. It's, no, it's just like pray, right? It takes, how long does it take to say the Lord's Prayer, which was Jesus' model prayer? It's like 14 seconds, right? So not crazy. Um, but there's also times where people pray long and hard, all night, you know? Sometimes it's all night and it's all lament, like David just fills his bed with tears, right? The first waterbed, people say. Right? That's almost as bad as Brandon. Okay, so go on to the next one, would you, Nicole? Um, so I, I was talking to a, a philosopher from Niagara College named Phil Woodward, and he's a philosopher on, of humanity. So he's, he does philosophical anthropology. And he said, people have really struggled with all the neurological research now as to whether or not humans really have any free will or not. And he said, none of the neurological stuff that people have been studying have actually shown that people don't have free will. We, we still have a mysterious relationship between what we call our will or our mind and our brains. He said, but one of the things that we have actually known for a long time is, by free will, you have to know what you mean by that. Because some people want free will to mean that I can become anything I want to be at any second and any time. And he's like, we really don't have that kind of free will. You're going to be what you are right now. Whatever happens right now, you're going to be what you already are. He said the only way we humans really have free will is we have the capacity because of consciousness and prediction to decide beforehand what we want to be in the future. And then we can decide to form ourselves so that we will predictably become that thing in the future that we really want to be, right? 
That's really the only kind of free will we actually have. But if we actually form ourselves to be the kind of people we want to be, the thing that we will do out of habit and character is exactly what we want to come out of us for habit and character. In that sense, we're totally free because we're exactly what we've chosen and want to be. The problem is, is that, that how do you go through that construction project? And the answer is through certain kinds of repetition, through things that form us, things that spiritual people have called disciplines or practices. Does that make sense? Go to the next one, would you, Nicole? Now, depending on what kind of church you go to, the kinds of practices or spiritual disciplines that people encourage us to do can vary widely. And sometimes it's fun to say that all the other people who aren't like us are all wrong. I mean, I was at my own dinner table tonight, and that was the topic of conversation. I don't know how I got combative children. Can you imagine? <laughs> right? But... Um, I could have added a few more to this. The African-American tradition could be added to this that's slightly different. But there, there, are certain, um, there are certain traditions, for example, the liturgical tradition, think Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Anglican, and so on. One of the ways in which they try to grow spiritually is by having certain sets of rituals, masses, and mechanisms that they do over and over in repetition as mechanisms of repetition and remembrance. And sometimes people from traditions like ours go, oh, that's so boring. It's all these like rote rituals that just they do over and over. Nobody knows what they're doing. In fact, like I grew up Roman Catholic, and that's how I experienced the Mass. Was I didn't really, it wasn't a life-giving thing to me. It just seemed like this repetitional thing that I didn't understand at all. At the same time, though, developmental psychologists will tell you that after the age of about seven, when your brain goes from more, a more imaginative state to a more concrete state, really the only way to change yourself is by repetition. Like, there's something really fundamentally anthropologically humanly real about repeated rituals as one of the most reliable ways to change, right? In the pietistic tradition, think here um, revivalist or charismatic, there's a strong sense on devotion. If you say, what's the most important thing to be the kind of person God wants you to be? They would say passion, devotion, right? You've got to feel it. There's got to be a fire, right? And that's, that's kind of right. Right? I mean, you've, you guys have heard me say before, the problem is of us arguing isn't that we're all wrong. The problem with us arguing is that we're all right, in a way. Right? Charismatics are right. And so the spiritual practices you see there is like prayer and worship, like dancing, the kinds of things that like, let's get, be, let's get past our inhibitions and let's get expressive and like let our minds and our hearts and our psychologies be caught up into what we really do believe and get past the inhibitions that hold us back from doing so. So for example, um, some churches will, will define prophecy as intuitional beliefs that you can share with others for their comfort and encouragement and affirmation, right? Now, do I think that's what prophecy really is? Not really, no. But can I see it as a beneficial spiritual practice that you have an intuition about somebody else and it's positive and you just tell them, right? Well, I know that's a good spiritual discipline. That's called affirmation or, or edification. Now, we might have the label wrong, but it's a, right, it's a right practice, isn't it? But you see, it's the same idea. It's get past your inhibitions. Believe that God wants you to get past your inhibitions to say something to another person that will build them up. You see, that's, see our, the world is full of people not doing that. Right? Even parents with their kids and people who really should be pouring out affirmation. I was sitting in this thing. I've cried about 35 times in the last 14 days, okay? Um, not because I'm falling apart. I actually think I'm coming together somehow in a strange way. But I was... Um, I was listening to this, these people advertise a worship leader mentoring program. So it was an advertisement. Okay, I'm crying during advertisement. But there was this guy, he's like 23, and he's like, he's talking about this program, and he's like, yeah, there's mentors in this program, like spiritual mothers and fathers. And he, they just spoke, just called stuff out of me I didn't even know was there. And I was like, that is not how I lead. I started crying. I was like, that's how people should lead. 
That's what we should do for each other is be like, look, I see something you don't even see in yourself yet. And it's amazing, you know? And so that's a really great spiritual tradition, right? And it's not really one that I've been a part of, right? In certain ways. Evangelical focuses more on like, look, you got to know the truth. You don't know what you're talking about, right? That, and so like in evangelical traditions, that high point is really rooted in is like Bible study. Like study the Bible, long sermons, stay on point. What are we reading? Did you read your Bible? Let's memorize some more verses, right? Like that might sound boring, but man, there's a lot of strength in that. Like um, you, you know stuff and you can correct things and you're like, you don't get pulled away on and you can, you can smell out nonsense when it's there and you actually know what you're talking about. It, one of the things that it can do is it can really aid in devotion. The more you know your God, the more you actually know to enjoy Right? And the more it can shape you, the more you know him. And then there's a the contemplative tradition, which is like subgroups of most of these, which is kind of like this. Listen, you can spend a lot of frenetic and gen like energetic time with each other. You could have prayer and worship where everybody yells and screams at Jesus. You can have, um, you can have Bible study till the cows come home where you're talking about this verb and that verb. But you can spend your whole life doing that stuff and not know yourself. And because you don't know yourself, you don't really know what God wants to do in the deep places. You can't really receive healing because you can't even be honest enough and know yourself well enough to open that place to God. And you end up just getting stuck and, going and spinning your wheels. And you're trying to be as spiritual as you possibly know how, and it's not working. And unless you can find a place where you can focus deeply rather than just broadly in a place where God can show you stuff he can't show you any other way, the likelihood that you're going to miss out on enormous things that God wants to give you is really serious. And within that contemplative tradition, there's a lot of spiritual direction. That is utilizing other people with the gift of discernment to help you in that process of contemplation. Go ahead and next one, Nicole. So one of the things, there's a number of things I want to say about this. As, as a church, I want us to be a church that blesses all kinds of churches. The church I was at this weekend is like a very Pentecostal church, Assembly of God church. There was a lot of dancing, yelling, screaming at Jesus. It was, it was great, right? And I'm not going to pee on their rug because they don't memorize enough Bible verses. You understand? And I, I don't want us to be that kind of church where anybody who's not just like us has got it all wrong. Okay, listen, we've got it half wrong, you know? Like, let's not, we don't have to be perfect. Like, we're just people trying to follow the Lord in the best way we can. And if we're humble enough, we'll probably learn a lot from a bunch of other people. And we need to just, but we need to stick with the scriptures. But what you things you find is, is that all of these are in the scriptures. Right? If you look at these different four families, there are ways in which they can all go bad. Right? There, there, there are evidences, like places in the Catholic tradition where like there's all this liturgy and no life. Like I grew up in that. They can all go bad. I've seen churches that preach the Bible so hard, so so strongly and so legalistically and so harmfully. And yet, like, it's hard to say what's wrong with what they're saying. But because they haven't had a contemplative bone in their body, they don't realize how much it's driven by anger. And they don't even realize what they're doing to people, but they're trying to preach the Bible so cleanly. And it's, it goes bad. And I've seen it in the, oh, listen, I've seen all kinds of stuff go bad charismatically. I won't even get into that. Um, and the contemplative tradition can get really weird and universalistic and can, can wander from the truths of the scripture very easily. And yet I've seen all four of those get used in ways that are really helpful. So here's the two things I want to like, hopefully take you a little further on. One is you may need to offer other than you use to people you minister to. Right? Like you, may, you may use certain of the, what, these wells personally. Like when, when we have praise and worship, that may be the thing that just really, really speaks to you. Okay? 
And, but then you might mentor somebody who's like, listen, I can't stand those prom song to Jesus crap things we have to sing before we can finally listen to the Bible be preached on Sunday morning. Right? And to just be like, well, you should like the songs. They're awesome. It may not work. <laughs> you understand? Having more spiritual wells to draw from to lead people in all the different ways God has invited them to follow him and get to know him is helpful. And it's also true that like even over the course of your own life, like there have been times in my life where reading the Bible was by far the most nourishing thing for me. Because I was, I was getting to know it for the first time. I was learning how to interpret it. Now I find some of these passages I've read over and over again, going through and reparsing the sentences again doesn't do as much because I, I still remember those. That already belongs to me. So now sometimes reading over them kind of slowly, more contemplatively, having already done the analytical work, allows them to sort of retouch me emotionally or affect my intuitions or like reveal a particular way I need to apply it to my life that I wouldn't have otherwise known. Does that make sense? And so even in your own life, drinking from different wells can be really helpful. As you minister to people, like if you're in a small group, trying to get everybody to do the same three spiritual disciplines is probably not helpful. Okay? And you can see this in some of the college ministries. Like when I was younger, some of the college ministries, they had like, every college ministry had the two spiritual disciplines they did, right? What did the navigators do? Bible, my Bible members, it was started by a military guy. What do you expect to happen, right? And then intervarsity's always been more touchy-feely, right? But they inductive Bible study, right? And stuff like that. And then Campus Crusade is like, the only way to get closer to Jesus is to lead people to Christ, right? I mean, that's always been their thing, right? But it's more than that, obviously. But like, usually like people have a certain kind of feel. Ministries have a certain feel to them based on what practices they like. And oftentimes that's connected to the personality type of the leader, which then leads to what? The personality narrowing of churches. So that churches become grouped by personality and what sort, of, what sort of ways God works in you and touches you, right? And what does that do? It diminishes the diversity of the church and the way God distributes gifts. Because oftentimes God will distribute his spiritual gifts in conjunction with the way he's already formed people in their temperaments, right? And so, like, that's just not good, right? We want to have a family of people where all this stuff is happening. Does that make sense? And we want to be able to minister. So if you have somebody, you may have somebody in your small group who like they really need to journal because their mind just goes too fast and they need to kind of slow down, right? And they need to talk to the Lord way slower than their mind is going because they need something that'll pull them a little bit out of their anxiety and get them a little bit more contemplative, right? And they may need a lot, some spiritual direction, right? Another person to engage in that with them in discernment because they can't trust what's buzzing through their head right now because they're just too anxious, right? Now, if you go and you take another person who's just come to faith, who's not anxious, doesn't know anything about Christianity, who's shacked up with his girlfriend, and you're like, let's journal. Like, that's probably not right. You're probably like, why don't you go to the men's Bible study that's working through Colossians? It'll be really helpful. Right? Because he needs to learn the content of the scriptures and what the gospel is and what Jesus teaches, and he needs to learn to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. Does that make sense? Great. Okay, and then the, the fifth one here is, is you probably need more than one well yourself. I already covered this. So let's go to the next one. How are we doing time-wise? I should really have this out here. <clears throat> All right, I need three volunteers. Now, to be a volunteer, you have to be here with a woman. Okay, you can be married to them, girlfriend, friends, roommates, work in the same ministry with them. I don't care, but you have to, you have to know that you are somehow connected to a woman in this room at this event. Okay, one. And yeah, I need two more. Yep, yeah, Femi. Can I get one more? 
Yeah, uh, let's mix up with age. We'll take, we'll take Andrew. Yep, yeah, you instead of Paxton. Okay. All right, guys, if you guys could all stand back here behind this table. All right, now, this is Francis de Sales. He is a, um, a spiritual writer in the Catholic tradition. And in one of his works, what he said was, is that um, God gives us many acts or practices of devotion. And as we minister to people, what we're actually doing for them, it's like we're creating a bouquet for them. God gives us all these different flowers. And what our job is, is to, is to think about who we're relating to. And then as a spiritual director, a spiritual caretaker for them, a pastor or a discipler, we should look at all the flowers that God gives us and put together a bouquet for them. Right? And so what I want you guys to do is think about the woman you're here with. These are your options. I want you to make a bouquet for the woman you're here with. And as you guys look at this, I want you to see this as like an act of discipleship, right? Like what you would do to prepare how to minister to someone relative to these practices, okay? So why don't you guys do this right while I'm talking. You start right now. Just don't fight with each other, okay? <laughs> Go ahead to the next one, Regina Cole. So um, there's a couple, there's a few spiritual disciplines or practices that are biblical universals, right? They're, they're the base flowers that have to be in your bouquet, okay? You got to get a couple roses in there. You got to get a couple sunflowers in there, something like that, right? They're the big centerpieces, okay? And one of them is what I, I decided to choose church membership rather than just worship. That is vital, committed, covenantal involvement in a body of local believers that are like real human beings who are the body of Christ together. And I'm calling that church membership, okay? Because if you look at what's involved in that, it's a cluster of different disciplines and practices that cover all four of the different things. Does that make sense? And so it includes worship, expression, fellowship, the spiritual direction and care of others, right? Teaching, so there's exegesis, there's learning directly of the word, right? There's ordinances or practices or rituals that we repeat over and over together, and so on. Let's go to the next one. The second is prayer and fasting. I put those two together because um, they're often connected in the Bible. And in prayer and fasting, prayer, for example, is a very, prayer is a very flexible discipline. We'll talk about that in just a second because I'm going to use it as an example for something. But there's lots of ways to pray that are still prayer. Um, people want to expand fasting to include everything but not eating food, but I always am a little reluctant about that. Um, but, but even the way you fast, like how long or in, in what way or what you do while you're fasting or how you think about it can vary somewhat too. Does that make sense? But it includes worship. Prayer often involves fellowship, praying with each other. Most prayer in the Bible is corporate. There's this place in John Wesley's journals where he talks about private prayer and there's an asterisk and in the margin he wrote, which is unbiblical. <laughs> because, because he's like, look in the Bible. How often do you see people praying by, praying by themselves? And you're like, well, Jesus did it a few times, didn't he? You know, but like the vast majority of times when people pray in the Bible, they're praying with other people. And so it's, I, I don't know if, I don't know if Wesley meant unbiblical, like you shouldn't do it, as opposed to it's unbiblical and that like, that's not the way prayer is practiced normally in the Bible. Prayer is practiced normally in the Bible by praying with each other. Does that make sense? Now, some of you are looking at me, at least with a third of the faces that I can see that like confused. Exactly. That's why I'm telling you this, right? That's why you, we read books from people who are not from our age. Because things that we just assume is fundamentally axiomatic about our faith, sometimes we've just made up. 
Because they're, they're a well that we've developed. They're a spiritual technology we like. And we, and we don't even realize how like, arbitrary it is. You know? Let's go to the next one. You can also see this in um, generosity, hospitality, and service. I put those together because they're all outgiving. It's, they're, all, they're all disciplines of serving others. So whether I give money or give time or serve or open up my house and give up my, my uh, privacy to welcome other people in or whether I'm serving others in other ways, there's still ways, like if I have a small group, I mean, think about this. If you have a small group every week on Wednesday at 6.30, that's a ritual. Do you understand? It's a corporate ritual. You, people count on it. They plan on it. It's part of their week. It's part of the, the structures and rhythms of their life, right? So it's fellowship. It's devotion. And it includes worship, right? Okay, let's go to the next slide. So those are the three categories. Now, each category of spiritual discipline starts with a fundamental thing that God commands or gives as a general idea. So let me use an example of prayer, okay? So within prayer, prayer then breaks down into different subsets of how it's connected with how we relate to God. So, for example, you say, okay, God says to pray, so I'm going to pray. Okay, well, how? Well, I could pray in a ritualistic kind of way. Like I could, I could pray every morning at 7.30 and I could light a candle and I could pray the Lord's Prayer and then I could read from the Book of Common Prayer, the Collect for the Day, and then I could read the Psalm for the Day and pray that Psalm, right? And how many people pray like that, right? Now, if I was at Scott Cunningham's Anglican Church and I said, how many people pray like that? Half the people would raise their hands. And if you ask them, well, is that, isn't that like a dumb, dead ritual to you? They're like, no. That's why I left my Baptist church and became Anglican, because I felt like I was just making up silly, personalized prayers, and I felt like I was getting shallower rather than deeper when I did it, right? Now, I'm not saying that always has to happen, but for those folks, that's one of the reasons they've moved in that direction, because it really helped them. That will help them, right? Now, you can be worship. You can have just worshipful prayer. Like, you just take time to tell God he's fantastic, and you're always right when you're doing that. And... Or you could, you could have contemplative prayer where you just like, listen, apparently Mother Teresa said one time, um, they asked her about her prayer life. And I'm not saying Mother Teresa was an Orthodox believer, but it, this is funny. Um, they, they, so he said to her, um, uh, Mother Teresa, what, what do you do when you pray? And she says, well, I mostly just listen. And so the person said, oh, that's really interesting. Well, what does God say when you're praying? And she said, well, he mostly just listens. <laughs> right. but, the, but like just like for example like, can you even get quiet I was, I was doing evangelism with, with this Hindu guy a couple years ago that I got connected with and he, he I was like you know would you want to like would you want to like read the Bible or like try something Christian he's like well would you want to try something Hindu and I was like like what and he's like well would you like meditate for like 10 minutes a day I was like, do I have to meditate on Ganesh or can I just like, and he's like, no, no, just like, just try to get your mind to stop for 10 minutes a day. I was like, I can do that, sure. That's Hindu, whatever, you know? And, and then we're like, he's like, and we'll get together and then like, I'll read some book of the Bible or whatever you want to do. Okay, great. So I did it because I told him I would, right? Man, it's really hard. <laughs> you know, it was really good for me. You know, I was just trying to just, but like, just like that, just being like, Lord, I just want to slow down because all this, all this movement is idolatry. It's all this like other salvation's energies running around in my head. I just want to stop. Like that's different than saying, let's praise the Lord. Everybody just shout great things about God right now. Everybody together, speak in tongues if you want to, right? Like those, are, those aren't the same thing. Those are arguably both Christian, but they're very different. And they're both prayer. Does that make sense? So you move through these. You get an affirmation. 
Request, you could put lament in here, right? These are fundamentally and biblical direct forms of prayer. But then, like, there are, like, I don't know if you want to call them technologies or something, but there's, like, subsets of, like, sort of ways people do it. Like journaling or um, doing scripture memory and then praying those scriptures or speaking in tongues if you have that spiritual gift or, like, just using, like, the prayer book to, like, guide and, like, pray yourself your way through the Psalms and the lectionary. There's all these, like, sort of sub-technologies. There's nothing wrong with them. Now, most of them can still go bad if you take them too far in the wrong sorts of ways. But we all end up doing something like that because making up our spirituality every 20 minutes is exhausting, right? And learning from people who've gone before us who have simpler, similar temperaments, similar vocations can really cut down some of the, the difficulty of finding stuff that really helps us. Does that make sense? Let's go to the next slide. So one of the ways to think about it is this, assorting the flowers of your spiritual practices or helping build a bouquet for somebody else. I know, guys, we'll get to toolboxes at the end. Um, so you first start with what? Like, what are the basics of spiritual discipline and participation with the Lord? This is a simple list I would make. Is it exhaustive? I don't know, but this is the basics. So prayer, talking to God. Scripture, knowing what God has said in his written word. Worship, like adoring God for who he is, right? Fellowship with other believers being part of the body of Christ, right? Serving others and rest. Okay, those are all fundamental spiritual practices in the Bible. Then you can say, well, how do I do them? By exerting devotion, by learning, by engaging in discipline, by practicing over and over with repetition, by reflecting, and by engaging in Sabbath or ceasing. That's how you have to cease to rest, right? Now, then it's like, okay, well, what are, what's the flower that does this? And one of the things you can think about is what fits a person. But one of the, one of the things, I'll get that in just a second. One of the things you can think about is some of these are doing five or six of these. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's ways that you can do stuff where you're doing more than one of these at the same time. But there's also ways to try to cope with practices that get too busy. Part of it is trying to find that sweet spot. So like, so like when evangelicals came up with the quiet time, right? Sometimes, I think some people think that like reading your Bible and praying or reading your Bible and journaling and praying has like, that's how Christians have sought the Lord always, right? Even when they were illiterate, you know, and there were no Bibles to read because there wasn't a printing press yet, right? What most Christians did throughout most of the history of the world, at least in Europe, when Europe was sort of Christianized, they went to daily mass is what they did. That's what most people did. Um... So let's go to the next slide. Sorry, we're getting close to end. So um, when you're thinking about yourself or you're thinking about how to, okay, um, when you're thinking about how to do this for others, um, these are some of the questions you can think of in putting together the bouquet. So what, you guys, why don't you take those and present them to the women that you brought and thank them for their service to High Point Church. Thank you, guys. Yeah, do, do you guys notice that like all those bouquets were kind of the same and different? Like, there's only so many flowers, right? But we could have like 75 different kinds of flowers, right? And we could have totally different bouquets. And they still would have been beautiful. And they would have been filled with flowers. And they would have been good. And they would have really been different. Does that make sense? Now, listen, you could take this metaphor too far and like we could all become universalists, right? But that's not what I mean. God has given us tracks to run. And like, if you went out into nature, there's only so many flowers that are out there that are real, right? And you got to cut those flowers that already exist. In, but you still are sorting them into a bouquet for a particular person, yourself, or somebody you're ministering to. The more self-conscious you can be about putting the bouquet together for yourself, the more conscious you'll be about how you're doing that for somebody else. Because if you just tell everybody the way to get to God is to read their Bible and pray every day, 
you, you won't even know how arbitrary that is if that's all you've ever heard. Does that make sense? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I think it's great. That's my favorite bouquet. Two flowers, but they're great ones, right? But you need to understand that there, like, there are some people that are like, they are just so seriously dyslexic that when they hear everybody in church say, what you do is you read your Bible and you pray every day. And it's so hard for, they're like, can I at least listen to the Bible and pray every day? Or like, there's still a lot of illiterate people in the world who don't have Bibles. What if that was the only way to draw close to God, to read your Bible and pray? What would people have done to draw close to God for like the first 1,500 years of Christianity? Right? So, here's some questions to ask yourself on this. One is, um, what are you doing right now? And is it working? Like, is it helpful? Are you finding it helpful? And what have you done in the past? And so on, right? And then you could ask somebody this. Well, what are you doing right now? Are you doing anything right now? And if they're doing nothing right now, well, you can start with the three universals, right? Covenantal member of a local church, right? Prayer and fasting, or just prayer. And fellowship with service, right? And you can say, like, let's, let's do those three things. Let's start with some version of those three things, right? Um, second is, how independent are you? Right? There are some people who are extraordinarily independent. Like my 14-year-old my son, Jude, he's done with high school right now. He wants to quit right now. He's like, Dad, I've done this school thing for like seven or eight years. It is so boring. He's like, I know how to read. I know how to do basic math. Like, I'm already trading stocks better than some professionals. Like, I'm ready to, like, go learn. He's like, I'd rather just get a job somewhere where I can just do something different. He's like, this is ridiculous. And we're just kind of like... Because <laughs> I, like, half agree with the kid. You know what I mean? So, so like, somebody like, dude, I, like, I literally, a, a month ago, I gave him an economics book. I said, hey, I bought this for you. I don't know if you want to read it. He's already read it. He's read two of Thomas Sowell's economics books already. This is, like, his fifth economics book. You know? Great. So, okay, so he's independent. So, turn this kid, kid like, like that loose with the Bible. Read the Bible, read the Bible. He can do that, right? There's other people that, like, they're just not there. They're just not, they're not used to concentrating. They're not used to doing stuff by themselves, right? Like, yeah, listen, I, I was talking to a pastor in town, and he was just talking about moms and their kids in his church. He's like, he's like listen, we could get a thousand books for my moms to read to their kids, and they just won't do it. He's like, if we want to, like, really change the lives of these kids, we're going to have to, like, have scheduled reading times or something. Because, like, telling people just to do something that's good for them. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but the average person in America who's really sick and has to take medication every day doesn't take it every day. But if their dog is sick, and if their dog doesn't get their medicine, their dog will die. They will get their dog medicine, but they won't give themselves medicine. Okay? Now, I'm not going to get into like, the widespread epidemic of human feelings of worthlessness right now, but... Um, but that idea of like people taking care of themselves, like I was talking to a teenage girl recently who was really depressed, and she was talking about how like she would lay in bed and have to go to the bathroom, and like didn't want to get out of bed to do it, and found it enormously difficult just to pull herself out of bed to just not wet herself, right? Like, and I know that feeling. I've like been in the mountains, cold in my sleeping bag, and I know I have a coat I could put on. I don't want to get out and get more cold, so that I can later get warmer. That fundamental discipline of like looking to the future and doing what needs to be done now so that the future you will be happier. Like if you can do that, like if you are disciplined enough to do that, like you're not in the majority of human beings. There's a saying in public speaking that the minute you learn something, you forget what it was like not to know it, right? And the minute you as a person develop, you're from like a family or a culture where there's a lot of self-discipline, you're like, oh, can't, why don't people do the stuff they're supposed to do? And there's like, well, you don't know what it's like to be them. It's really hard for them. 
And so you got to ask yourself, how independent is the person that I'm working with? You might have to meet with them. You might have to read the Bible to them. You might have to sit with them like a kid with ADD taking a test in fourth grade and like keep them on task. Okay, you still reading? What are we doing? The second is, what's, what attraction and avoidance are operating in you? So one, what are the spiritual disciplines or practices you're attracted to that you like? Well, fine, move towards them. What are the three that you're trying to avoid? Because those might be the next three you need to do. Right? Like, I know solitude is difficult for extroverts. But it might still be really important you do a little bit of it. And I've seen that happen. I've seen extra, like extroverts just like the fate worse than death. Like do a couple hours of solitude, which is all they can handle, you know? And they're like, yeah, that was the worst experience of my life. And I'm like, okay, did, did the Lord show anything to you? And they're like, yeah, oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's really painful, you know? So, um, so what are you trying to do and what are you avoiding? Those are two good questions. One is um, immersive versus deep attention. So like, our, our site is kind of structured for immersive attention, like paying attention to everything all at once, so you don't get left behind in an information culture. What that does is it programs our mind to be really difficult for us to go deep in anything. There's two problems with that. One is a lot of things about God are really deep. You know? Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And that's a doxology. That's somebody erupting into praise and joy in God because they have plumbed a little bit of the depths of it, right? But also, that's where most of your wounds are hiding that are holding you up in your real spiritual development, right? It's, it's taken me um, 28 years in Christ to get at some of the things I'm dealing with right now that are extremely embarrassing and really fundamental to my character. Um, and I'm feeling like I'm being, God's really working on them. And it was, it was so hard to realize they were even there because all my defense mechanisms caused me to believe the opposite about myself as the truth. And so my whole self-image had to crumble before I could even begin to face what was really true. That's really hard. Without deep, deep focus and contemplation that allows you to like, allow some of that stuff to happen, and for most of us, it's going to require somebody else to help us. We're going to need some kind of direction from somebody that can see it in us. Um, you know, we're just going to get stuck. I can't tell you how many Christians I know, especially like white educated Christians, who are doing a few spiritual disciplines. They grew in faith to a certain point. They know their Bible well. They're not sleeping with anybody they're not supposed to. They give faithfully, but they feel totally stuck spiritually. They feel like it's been years since they grew like they grew at first. And they don't know why. And um, I don't have 45 more minutes to talk. We'll do that another time. Okay, the fifth is more solitude or more fellowship. Some people are too isolated to grow spiritually. They really need to spend more time with other people, and they need to catch and absorb certain dynamics of spiritual devotion. They need to be around people who actually believe God loves them so that they can experience that, right? And they, you, you sort of absorb it. There's other people who they're just around people all the time, and they need to get alone a little bit, you know? And which that is for you or the person you're ministering to is important. And then the last is, spiritual, is authority in spiritual direction, direction. Do you need somebody to help direct you? How much direction do you or another person need? And we don't do that a lot in evangelical churches like ours because if you're like, Nick, I need some spiritual direction, I'm prone to say, well, read your Bible. There's 66 books of spiritual direction. <laughs> you know? But that's different than sitting down with somebody who actually has the discernment and the experience to like, help you figure out what's going on and what God is doing in your life and where you need to go. Does that make sense? And that's one of the reasons why we have mentoring programs. We've had a women's one for a long time, and I've seen so many women in that program 
or who have mentors grow a ton just because somebody's listening to them with some discernment as best they can. You don't need, um, professionals are great, especially for certain problems. But one person with a doctorate in psychotherapy that I know who's also a priest said what about half of people need is somebody to listen to them because they'll figure themselves out as they're telling you about themselves. Because a lot of people are just external processors. They literally have no one really to talk to that's safe. You know? So let's go to the next slide. So let's end with this. We've got about four, almost five minutes left, four and a half minutes left. Tell some people at your table what your bouquet is right now. And if you need to add any flowers, you think. Or share somebody you're working with that God has put you in a place to help them make their bouquet. If you're a guy and you want to say toolbox, that's fine. <laughs> that's cool. Um, but just spend a little time just talking about that at your table, and then we'll, we'll break up. But I, I hope you can see how, by trying to look at all of the Christians through all of time and how they've all been responding and trying to draw close to God in devotion, we have a much bigger heritage than we think sometimes. And it's not heretical to receive spiritual traditions from other people so long as we keep utilizing them in agreement with the scriptures and with Christ.